Hi, this is Mel Cranenberg, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Backstory, a weekly radio show exploring books, stories, the craft of writing, and the people behind the lines. Backstory is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website, Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Independent Melbourne Radio 3 Triple R. Welcome to Backstory, the show about books, the craft of writing and the people behind the lines. I'm Mel Cranenberg. So good to be here with you live in a city shrouded in masks, in differing styles and colours, personality breaking through grim necessity. I'd like to acknowledge that I'm broadcasting today on the lands of the original storytellers of this place, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, here where their sovereignty was never ceded. I pay respects to their elders, past, present and emerging, and those of all other Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people listening today. On today's show titled This Is Not a Eulogy for Hong Kong, writer Elizabeth Flux rages from afar as the place she still sees as home faces an erosion of rights and a bleak future. Elizabeth joins me later in the hour to discuss her impassioned essay and the tightening of mainland China's grip on the region that prompted it. But soon... Ren lives off the land high in the mountains, her only human contact bartering with a kindly stranger, Barlow, who offers thoughtful necessities in exchange for mostly meagre offerings. But soon her hermetic existence will be broken by a young soldier who brings violence and her own complicated history. Into all this and at the heart of it is the rain heron, made of water, bringing much-needed rain or flood and famine, famine, flying out of myth and into a country in the grip of a military coup. Robbie Arnott's The Rain Heron really is a strange and perhaps allegorical novel, a maturing of the flights of imagination that marked his first award-winning novel, Flames. Robbie Arnott joins me soon to discuss this book and the fantastical creature he's brought to life. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. This water-risen heron was unlike any other they'd seen before. Any other heron, any other living creature. Its blue-grey feathers were so pale, they claimed later that they could see straight through the bird. Its body was pierced by strands of dusky light and the tree was clearly visible directly behind its sharp, moist beak. So rises the rain heron, the eponymous and fantastical creature at the centre of Robbie Arnott's new novel, his second, and one that is at once dystopian, somehow hopeful and perhaps allegorical. Robbie Arnott joins me now to discuss the book and the very strange creature he's given life to. Robbie, welcome to Backstory. Robbie, this is an incredible uh, story that you've woven. It does start with something that very clearly seems to be an allegory about this mythical bird, but it very quickly winds into a story that feels more real-worldy, although set in a strange dystopian future that involves a 
military coup, although we are living in quite dystopian times already. Tell me, where did this strange story and creature come from? Yeah, I was really interested in in writing a nature fable, and that's all I wanted to do in the first place. I wanted to create this creature that embodied both the beauty and the savagery of nature, and I just wanted to invent a myth, myth. so that's how I came up with the rain heron. Um, But pretty soon, as I wrote more and more, it started having a bit of more of a plot to it, and more characters started emerging. Um, I didn't know what I was doing the whole time, but it ended up being almost a road story that combined a lot of different elements with a completely made-up imaginary creature yeah like i was lucky enough i think to talk to you about your original book uh, or your you know first book i should say flames uh which very much did have early elements of your sort of interest in in creating the fantastical including uh, giving um the creatures in the book a sort of you know interior life just to see where the story goes essentially yeah Absolutely. I have no idea what I'm doing. Um, I just try to explore things that I find interesting and I hope that readers would find interesting too. Um, I don't really set out with lofty goals or with like a tightly plotted narrative. I just see where it goes and I just think it's important to write imaginatively uh, about nature and about everything else. Absolutely. So look, there's a really interesting, um, you know, kind of couple of characters at the centre of this book. I'd love you to introduce Ren and Zoe. Yeah, so as the novel opens, uh, it starts with Ren, who's a woman in her late 40s or mid-50s, and she's living as a hermit on the side of a mountain. She's fled a coup in the unnamed country where the book is set, and she just wants to live in peace and live alone, and the way she survives is by trading with people in the village at the foot of the mountain. And then... What actually happens is soldiers come from the military coup and they're tasked with tracking down the rain heron. And Ren tries to convince them that it doesn't actually exist and no one's sure whether or not it's a myth or if it's real or not. And she comes into con- conflict with Lieutenant Harker, the leader of the soldiers. And from there, their conflict draws out whether or not the rain heron is real and, and derives the story from there. You have some quite... Look, the structure of this book is not... uh, I wouldn't say it's experimental necessarily at all, but you have got some very clear sort of uh, differing structural elements. You start out with this mythological um, discussion or mythological storytelling um, about the rain heron and, uh, you know, its uh, impact in this small farming community um, using terms like the farmer and uh, and the neighbour boy um, that are sort of affected by this mythical creature and then you kind of start to tell the story of Ren which is very much you know in within this um this sort of time frame of the military coup she's the hermit in the mountains and we then hear the story uh about Zoe uh who is uh living in a um in a, a seaside community that are harvesting squid ink uh, and that itself is a sort of interesting quite sort of fantastical feeling story as well can you talk a bit about that part of the book yeah so in the second section of the book we open with um zoe who's a young girl living in a coastal town and this town doesn't have much going for it other than the fact that they harvest a particular kind of ink from squid and I don't want to give away how that is done, but it's in a very animistic, almost symbiotic nature relationship between people and between animals. 
And uh, her world is rocked then by um, someone coming from the north who wants to industrialise this almost sacred industry. And then their story does tie up together with the wren on the mountain. and It all does make sense, I promise, to anyone listening. It's not just my random ramblings. Um, and, yeah, I guess it's just more of a, a comment and a story about about people working with nature as opposed to working to destroy it or working to exploit it. I think people have actually worked alongside and with nature for thousands and thousands of years and it's something that I think we can still imagine and we can still do. Yeah, you do get that very strong sense of, of you know, the the main sort of central theme being about that symbiosis of humans and nature that we can't evade no matter how we must. I mean, it's hard not to see the rain heron as an allegory for climate change. Um, there's really that element throughout the book where you're feeling that every time the characters in the book push out against something that is so, you know, synonymous with nature as the rain heron, which literally is made of rain or water um, that they really do it it comes back to literally uh, bite or peck them I guess to a certain extent what was that sort of your intention to to make that kind of direct relationship clear well, I didn't want to do anything of a writing directly it takes a bit of the fun out of it but I definitely was something I was thinking about and one thing that was really important to me when I was creating this creature was that it didn't care about people or human goals um that's something that is very true to nature, I think. You know, it's not a British nature all bright and wonderful thing. You know, nature is dangerous and savage as, as much as it is beautiful and wondrous. And I wanted to have this creature that cared as much about human ambition and human emotion as as a storm would over whether or not it was going to destroy a barn and rip it to splinters. Both of your major characters in this book, Ren and Lieutenant Harker, are these quite sort of existential characters in many ways. They're, it's them kind of quite fiercely uh, facing the world and their circumstances. They're tough characters and they really do, you know, they're survivors really in their own ways. Um, where did these characters emerge from? Um I, I wanted to create these characters who were expressing resilience in, in quite different ways. Um, they're very different characters, but they both have been put through the absolute ringer and they're, they're still going on. Um, in Ren's case, she's, she's acting quite nobly and looking after herself and, and being quite kind to the people around her. And in Zoe's place, she's almost doing the opposite. But they're both still surviving. And I, I wanted to have these, these dual pictures of resilience in characters and and how we choose to adapt to the environments around us can actually really have a big impact on the effects we have on other people. Yeah, absolutely. You're, uh, you know, and it's it's obvious too that these are characters that very much are reflecting some of the, the nature that you describe in the book uh, very much whether or not this is an unnamed country uh, one can't help but but ponder the nature that's actually prompted it and it, there is quite a nice piece uh, on the text publishing website um, about uh, I think it actually is entitled Robbie Arnott on the Rain Heron and the Beauty of Tasmania in which you discuss your sort of you know obsession I guess with the Tasmanian wilderness particularly the mountains and how that's really um, become wound into this storytelling. 
Yeah, absolutely. I'm really lucky. I'm a, I'm a Tasmanian and I live down. I'm particularly lucky at the moment. About a mythical creature and the humans whose lives brush past it. Uh, I really feel like um, I want to talk about the actual line-by-line writing in this book because I think that you have quite an interesting writing style. It seems quite simple in its way. Um, you're, you do seem to write very much in action. You're you know, you're writing very much what's happening rather than pausing uh, on long descriptions. I found it quite a smooth read, but you're still managing to evoke this kind of landscape and imagery. I want to know how you do that. How do you write to get that sort of ease of style, both kind of pushing the action forward at the same time as having a sense of reflection on landscape? Um, well, I guess the boring answer is to say I read constantly and I'm constantly picking apart the authors I love to try and figure out what really works and what would work for me. Um, another thing, this is like quite a quite a simple thing, is I, I really avoid writing about the interiority of characters' minds um, just because I'm not very good at it. And some writers are amazing at it, and that's what some novels do really, really well, write about the interiority of people's lives. But I realised a few years ago that um, I couldn't do that with any sense of flow or anything that really propelled any of the writing forward. So I almost did away with it entirely and left myself to description and tried to let my character's actions speak for the character as opposed to having them talk about or think about why they were doing things. Um, and suddenly that changed everything the way I was writing. Suddenly when I was just writing about descriptive passages, um, it came along a bit sharper and quicker. And when I was describing what people were doing, it came along a bit smoother because I wasn't trying to justify what they were doing through an interior monologue or anything. Um, so it's probably a bit of a simple answer, but that's pretty much how I kind of do it. Yeah, it's it actually, it's it's very effective. And I think in a way it kind of gives that sense of, of you know, really you know you can see the images as as you're going through the book and I guess there isn't a lot of dialogue in this book either so I think it does also um, push the book the story forward and the relationships between the characters in a way that's um, that's quite effective so yeah it's a really interesting craft that you've honed did you find that that has evolved somewhat from your first novel yeah it has quite a bit um I tried to do lots of different things with my first novel, Flames, um, some of which I thought kind of worked and some of which maybe didn't work as well as I hoped it would. But it was a bit of a level of experimentation. And with The Rain Heron, I kind of leaned into the things that I felt worked best and that I think other people enjoyed more. Um, So that's the kind of style of The Rain Heron that I leaned into um, and kind of just kind of stepped away with some other things I'd been trying. Yeah, I really feel as though this book has a, it feels much tighter than your previous book. And I'm wondering, is that, do you feel as though you spend a lot more time crafting the the text now? Or do you think that you've just now got a lot of sort of writing hours under your belt so that the way it comes out on the page is a lot tighter as well? I'm not obviously uh, suggesting as well, you, you do have an editor at text who I'm sure works with you on some of that. Um, Yes, I have an editor, Mr. David Winter. He's a very talented and handsome man. Um, But no, I I spend a lot more time crafting it. You're right. Um, It doesn't come out as easily as maybe it looks. Um, I do kind of obsess over a bit more. And particularly with this book, it had a more uniform style. So if anything, I obsessed obsessed more and more over it to make sure that there was a greater degree of consistency in the prose. Um, But I think all writers do that. I think everyone obsesses over their, their sentences to a degree. Um, yeah, yeah, I just kind of spent hours and hours going back over and over and 
deleting commas and putting in full stops and things like that, but like all writers do. Without going into too much detail, I, I love how you've talked about plot as something that sort of that you know, that I guess comes up through the writing of the text. And a lot of authors uh, do have different styles and approaches when it comes to uh, crafting narrative versus crafting the actual um, characterization. This does uh, tie up in a way that feels more true to life, perhaps. Uh, do you feel like that might be a result of your style, not trying to um, create an imposed narrative and just let it, letting it meander where it will? I mean, I think so, yeah, like, to be honest, I don't think about it all that much, because um, whenever I do, I get a headache trying to come up with, like, a neat ending or plot lines or something, so in some ways I feel like I have no choice, um, and maybe if it does come out a little bit of a messier and truer to real life, it might reflect the process. Um, I, I know some other writers and have friends who have, like, those huge big charts and whiteboards where they, they've plotted out every character beat and plot point, and then they just write the book to meet those requirements, and and I just, like, I get stressed hearing that, and, like, I start to sweat because it makes me anxious just even thinking about doing that. So, yeah, I just let it follow its natural course, like you said, and hopefully it's somewhat true to life. It feel, I mean, I think as well, uh, going through what we're all going through at the moment and reading characters that are very much isolated in nature, it does have a feeling of resonance um, that I, I felt as though I could relate to a lot more perhaps because of the circumstances within which I'm reading it. But I was also tempted to say that this novel does have a very Tasmanian feel. Is there, do you feel, something particular to the landscape of Tasmania that compels a particular type of writing? Um, I'm not too sure, really. A lot of people like to talk about Tasmania as a very gothic place, um, which I think is kind of nonsense. It's just like a really easy way to say, ooh, the Tasmanian gothic, I went to Dark Moso. Um, but Tasmania's very different. All the landscapes and wilderness here are very varied depending on which part of the island you go to. So if anything, I think they kind of push you into evoking a sense of wonder because there's, there's no uniformity to the landscape. There's huge dolerite mountains and then there's amazing sandstone cliffs and there's these granite peaks of the hazards on the east coast of Wineglass Bay and then there's every different type of forest and grassland and, and every different sort of beach and and I think it just does provoke that sense of wonder um, because there's so much happening in quite a small island um, and it's not all dark and dreary and it's not all light and sunny. There's just shades everywhere and I think if anything, that's the sort of writing it provokes is this this sense of awe and wonder at what's happening around you. Even as a, a quite like everywhere in Australia, the population is very urbanised, but you're quite close as well to this, you know, incredible natural beauty that's right. You know, you can literally from the centre of Hobart go for a walk in an area that very quickly becomes semi-rural in its feel. Um, so I think there's also that aspect where you are kind of always seeing these two parts to the way we live. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and like I said, we're just really fortunate to be able to do that. I can walk to the top of Kunani Mount Wellington from my back door and I live in like West Hobart, which is just a, a normal suburb. So it's all pretty accessible and strange and it, it definitely does filter into, into the way we see things and the way society positions itself, I think. 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, Robbie, I could talk to you a lot longer about this book. It's uh, it's definitely one that has gotten me thinking, and um, I do love that this uh, it it gives people an opportunity to place their own meaning on on some of the the kind of perhaps um, allegory that one might evoke from the rain heron. So thank you for leaving that space for us to reflect upon what it might mean for us. Oh, no worries. Thank you so much for having me on. And, yeah, I, I really wanted to leave it open like that because I don't know all the answers, but hopefully it's something that we can all engage with. Yeah, that's really great. Thank you so much for joining me today on Backstory. Cool. Thank you, Mel. That was Robbie Arnott, uh, whose book The Rain Herod is out now through text publishing. Coming up next, Elizabeth Flux joins me to talk about her Kill Your Darlings essay, This Is Not a Eulogy for Hong Kong. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. As Hong Kong's independence and rights are eroded by the day, I am filled with a rage and sorrow that I feel I have no claim to. What does the future look like? like for a place I love. That's the impassioned precede to Elizabeth Flux's Kill Your Darlings essay, This Is Not a Eulogy for Hong Kong. In it, Elizabeth rages from afar as the place she still somehow sees as home faces an erosion of rights and a bleak future. Joining me now on the line is Elizabeth to discuss her essay, and the political situation that prompted it. Elizabeth, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. Now, I I really, I was quite moved by reading this because it has at its core something that many of us feel at the moment uh, about all that surrounds us, which is this sense that uh, we can't uh, do anything, that we feel um, immobilised and un- unable to to change a situation that's quite devastating. Yours has been further exacerbated by the situation that's evolving in Hong Kong that seems so bleak. Um, can you talk about where this essay came from? I guess part of it came from... Sorry, just taking one moment... Um, Basically, I woke up one morning and there was a news story about a national security law being passed in Hong Kong. And it was just like a little thing, but it was kind of something that we'd all been waiting for. It was a a move by China to take over control of Hong Kong. And it basically was kind of like seeing your fears come to life. And so from there, after talking with family, with friends, it just saw the... I guess the border of what the future looked like for Hong Kong shift in a different direction to what I thought it was going to be. Yeah, I really felt like reading through this essay, there's been obviously so much written and um, talked about with what's going on in Hong Kong, but this essay did really bring it home for me, I think particularly because you framed it as home. And I think that that's one of those really important elements that when we look at what's going on in the rest of the world, we don't necessarily have an empathy for what, for the norm, for those that are living in that place. So I think really what you've done with this essay is try to to put it in terms that people can really relate to, which is 
you know, this is my home. This is a place that I feel a, a great kinship with. You talk about the landscape. Um, you talk about the, the feelings it evokes. You talk about the places and then seeing them in the news. Uh, was this, you know, something that, that just arose from your own emotions and a sense of things? Or was this a deliberate attempt to kind of really connect the audience with, with what you were feeling and what's going on in that country? It was a bit of both because I realised now, um, something that I should have realised a long time ago, is that we are very desensitised to how news is. Like, it's, we hear these horrible things happening all the time and it seems so, <clears throat> seem so abstract. Like, we understand that it's bad, we can empathise with people, but it always seems like it's one degree away from ourselves. And what this has thrown into sharp relief for me is that things are fragile. Like, in living memory... Even um, for my father, he lived through World War II. And for me, that's an abstract concept, but for him, that's his lived experience. And so seeing what's happening in Hong Kong and projecting what's going to happen, it's scary and it's close and it's real. And I guess I was trying to put that into words. Yeah, and I think you did it really beautifully. You described the complex political situation in really quite simple language in simple terms uh, wound in with these other elements that um, that really kind of make it even more evocative. You talk about how obviously, uh, you know, independence was supposed to finally um, be handed entirely over um, back to the, the Chinese government in 2047, but actually uh, due to the, this kind of sneaky legislation that's being pushed in, this one country, two systems idea is anything but, in fact, China is 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 coming in much sooner. You talk about a, uh, you know, dystopian um, film that was made in, in 2015 that, that looks at what it would be like in Hong Kong in 2025. And there's a real feeling from what you're describing that, in fact, that is what's happening. Can you talk a little bit about these elements and how, you've, how you kind of refine them to such an extent to make them easily explicable to an audience that might not be familiar with this history? Yeah, well, I feel like it's really easy to lose the emotion of something in the detail of the politics. So, like, the national security law did seem very complicated to me, even when I watched um, um, 2025, which is what the, the film called, 2020, 10 years, sorry, the film's called 10 years. Um, and one of the films in it is about the aftermath of the national security law. And that's the thing that's come in now. And I feel like it's... It's, it was literally done behind closed doors and it was brought in without anyone having actually read the words of it, which is very scary in and of itself. And now we're getting the first charges coming through and it's still very ambiguous, like, what the laws are. You could be breaking it without realising it. Like, we could be breaking it by talking about it because it isn't just restricted to Hong Kong. And I feel like I'm not a lawyer, but I shouldn't have to be to simply know if I'm breaking the law or not. Yeah, the laws you're talking about are things that supposedly affect secessionist, subversive or, or terrorist activity, but they're very ill-defined and could relate mm -hmm. to anything. And a further bill that actually restricts, um, I think, was it criticising, making fun of the, the national anthem. So these really quite draconian um, laws that, that really mean it's, uh, it's quashing any kind of actual independence uh, Hong Kong yeah, might yeah. have. The, the national anthem law was actually a separate one, which is, it seems like there's all these things, 
Another part of the national security law is collusion with foreign forces, which, again, is so vague. Like, what is collusion and what counts as it? Yeah, absolutely. I think what you you kind of really foreground some of this and the feeling of it when you when you talk about watching this the film Ten Years that was released in twenty fifteen about you know how uh, this was handed out as sort of you know pirated I guess uh, copies among the the diaspora Hong Kong community um, and it in, contained in it this idea of um, you know really what life would be like um, there's one one scene you describe where a taxi driver is shunned for only being able to speak Cantonese the local Hong Kong dialect rather than Mandarin which in this film had become dominant and so these these kind of uh, I guess fictitiously rendered fears are in fact now something that you feel are very much coming to fruition and sooner even then was imagined. Is that very much the kind of feeling that, that you wanted to kind of get across to people that regardless of the fact that we don't know exactly how these things are affecting people, you know, we can really very easily see what might be happening soon? Yeah, I guess it's just important to talk about it and also see how it is impacting people because such, so much of the discourse is framed around economy and how Hong Kong is a financial hub. But it's also somewhere that people live and where people wanted to live out the rest of their lives. And now people are making plans to flee to other countries because they don't know what's coming next. And that's a real familiar story, actually. But it always feels like something that's going to happen to someone else that's not directly connected to our lives. And I guess for me, I wanted to show what that realization was like and also just how upsetting it is. You, you're right. Uh, I saw a friend posit a hypothetical on social media wherein a new Hong Kong could be set up in another country and all current citizens be given the option to move there. But Hong Kong or any other place isn't simply the people who live there, nor are they economies first and homes second. Those things are vital, yes, but it's also humidity making your dress stick to your back. It's double, a double-decker bus going fast around a rocky mountainous road. It's tree roots growing into concrete. It's grandparents sitting outside an apartment building, passing the time quietly and companionably. Places are complex, multi-layered, unique, a back and forth between environment and the people who live and have lived there. You can transplant the community elsewhere, but a new Hong Kong could only be a Hong Kong in name, not truth. This seems like something that really should be self-evident when one is talking about a home that may be lost. Why do you think it is necessary to explain this to people when it comes to Hong Kong? I think it's necessary to explain to people anytime it's happening somewhere that doesn't directly impact them. And I'm guilty of this as well, because I think it is hard both intellectually and emotionally to project yourself into a situation that would be so difficult to handle. Like, it's hard to imagine the things that you saw as stable pillars of your life actually being fragile. Like, it's hard to imagine this happening in Australia, but it was equally hard for me to imagine that happening in Hong Kong, but it is. So I guess I was trying to bridge that divide in my own experience and try and put into context that this could happen anytime, anywhere. I was thinking reading this article, and this is certainly something we've talked about on this show many times, uh, but it always bears remarking upon that that really I feel like quite often what I think of as news or what I connect with more 
more and more is coming from the essay style. Um, I feel like, you know, the ephemeral nature of social media and the fact that news has now become such a flickering sort of fleeting element, I require it to be given this shape, something that, that has a thoughtfulness to it, that that grounds it in a sense of connection with other other things, other contexts. Do you feel that way about, um, you know, you, you did say at the top of this interview that, that you felt like news didn't really capture this this kind of connection. Do you think the essay is really the answer to, to how we can encourage um, a greater sort of engagement with news, if you like? I think the more voices we can hear on a topic, the, the more filled out the picture is and the more likely we are to engage with it. So we need the hard news. Uh, we need to know the bare facts of it without emotion. We also need to know why it matters. And I agree with you that essays are a good way to do that because it's a way that people can share their experience in their own way and put things in context that might otherwise just seem cold and devoid of detail. Yeah. Well, Elizabeth, I, I'm really, I was really moved by this article. Do you feel as though, I, you know, I feel like this is the start of something in a way. Um, I, I can feel that this was written out of a sense of great um, a great feeling of loss or a great feeling of, of anger and frustration and um, heartache. Um, but is this something that you feel there is more for you to write about? I definitely think there is more to write and every day there is more news and more shifting of the boundaries of how the future looks. So it is something I think I'd write more on, and it is something I'd love to read more on. Like, I really want to read more about what people are feeling in Hong Kong, about people who are leaving, about people who are choosing to stay. Um, and I think there's a lot more to be said and discussed. Well, Elizabeth, thank you so much for joining me today at such short notice as well uh, to talk about your incredible piece. Um, it is called This Is Not a Eulogy for Hong Kong, and, and thank you so much, Elizabeth Flux, for joining me. Thank you for having me. That was Elizabeth Flux. And again, the title of her essay is This is Not a Eulogy for Hong Kong. It is in uh, Kill Your Darlings, which is available online. But of course, you can get a subscription to it. And I very much uh, recommend considering getting a subscription to uh, some of your favourite local literary journals. I really must say that um, that literary journals, despite the fact that they have a reputation for a quite small audience, tend to reach uh, out far further than they are reputed to do and do need the support of a reader base that is paying for their um, for the creation of of the journal um, essays really are just an incredible thing right now I will not stop talking about them I can definitely promise you that that is I'm afraid all we have time for today on Backstory, I would like to thank my guests, Robbie Arnott, author of The Rain Heron, uh, which is out now through text publishing, and Elizabeth Flux, uh, whose article, This Is Not a Eulogy to Hong Kong, is now in Kill Your Darlings. Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7. Hi, this is Mel Cranenberg. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Backstory, a weekly radio show exploring books, stories, the craft of writing and the people behind the lines. Backstory is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Wednesday. 
Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via the Triple R website, Facebook, Instagram or Twitter. 